Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Squiggly Careers podcast. I'm Sarah and I'm not joined by my co-host Helen this week because this is one of our special guest episodes where we invite someone to join us who we think is making work better in some way, shape or form. And this week I'm delighted to welcome Viv Goscrop who is author, presenter and stand-up comedian. I'm sure you will have checked out her book and her podcast, Own the Room, and you might have seen her writing in lots of different places. If you don't follow her Instagram account, I definitely recommend it. I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about that. But for now, welcome to the podcast, Viv. Thank you. I'm so excited to be your special guest. You are our special guest. There's not many of them. We only invite 12 a year, so you're one of 12. That's why they're so special. Isn't they? Indeed. So what prompted you, you wrote the book first, the podcast followed in terms of Own the Room. What prompted you to think that that was a topic that needed your time and your energy? Well, for people who haven't heard me before, my name is Viv Grosskop and People of a certain age, because I'm in my 40s, will, might know my name if they were readers of The Guardian or The Observer over the last 20 years. So most of the first part of my career through my 20s and early 30s was writing. So I was an interviewer, did loads of TV reviewing, and I had a mini midlife crisis in my mid-30s, which led me into stand-up comedy. Um, I know that isn't the most obvious sentence <laughs> in the world, but that's how it worked out for me. It was a dream I'd always had as a child. Although I love writing and um, I'll always want to write, I always had this dream of I'd love to be speaking my writing to people because I love that connection, the communication that you have with people um, that you get sometimes from writing. And I wanted that live and direct. So I started to perform stand up and that was a difficult route. And I learned a lot of lessons very fast. But one of the things that came up completely coincidentally as a result of that is that lots of friends I had from different walks of life, sometimes through journalism, would say, will you come into our work and talk about how you're learning to own the room, ah. how you're learning to MC, how do you cope with heckles, how have you got the courage to make this career change. So I started to go into other people's workplaces and do motivational talks or sometimes workshops. Yeah. It was really quite informal the way that this happened. I just did it because people I knew asked. Yeah. And I realized that I could actually teach 
these skills that I was learning and I loved teaching it and it yeah. almost felt like a sort of a payback for all of the hell that I'd been through <laughs> Worth of it. like really difficult gigs and learning how to cope with those and and horrible sort of tumbleweed moments you know all of those difficult humiliations which are totally normal totally normal in that world and to be able to pass that on to other people so that they will feel less nervous while giving their Q4 marketing presentation yeah it just made me feel so much better and that it hadn't been for nothing so that was a kind of a small part of what I did for a few years was this very informal impromptu workshop coaching training that I was just doing by word of mouth and then the more time went on and then I was doing more Edinburgh shows so I had five years doing Edinburgh shows um, at the stand and at Underbelly at the Fringe and I was thinking oh it'd be so great to have a book about how you do this stuff but that isn't for comedians or for actors or performers that's for everybody and that is specifically focused on women because I'm a real geek and whenever I want to do anything new, I just read every book under the sun mm -hmm. that's ever been published on that topic. And so when I first started stand-up, I read Steve Martin's book. Uh, I read loads of public speaking books. I read yeah. everything. And 90% of it is by men, for men and about men. Yeah. Especially public speaking, actually. And I thought there's just nothing out there for women. And that was around the time that Michelle Obama was becoming really prominent as a public speaker. Everybody was getting addicted to TED Talks, which I think yeah. now are sort of slightly over. But like three, four years ago, everyone yeah. was really into the TED Talks. And I was following these. And every time I would log on to TED, I would see in the top 10 viral, most popular TED Talks, at least six or seven would always be women. Yeah, and this was a sort of reversal of the numbers that we are led to believe uh, in the way that women are underrepresented in the workplace and in prominence in public life. And I thought, oh, this is so interesting because if you look at virality and what people are choosing to click on on TED, they're choosing the women. Yeah. And so I formed this idea in my mind of wanting to do this self-help book that would be a little bit like... Do you know Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way, yeah. which is about how to uncover yourself as a writer or as an artist? Uh, it's quite hippie, but I absolutely love it. It has this idea of morning pages in it where you write longhand three pages every single day. You never show it to anyone. You never use it for anyone. You just use it to get stuff out mm. and to uncensor yourself. So I thought how great it would be to have a speaking and confidence version of that that is about owning the room and not owning the room for people who want to do a TED talk or appear on stage in front of 2000 people or blow everybody away at their marketing conference. <laughs> Those people it could help too, but not everybody is that person to help people who've got a difficult job interview coming up, people who hate talking on the phone. Yeah, It's about owning the room in a very metaphorical kind of sense of you know the room might be your child's bedroom where you're telling them to go to sleep and they're not listening yeah 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 I get that as well <laughs> so it's about holding your ground it's about persuasion it's about confidence and ironically for a long time I thought this is a great idea for a book I would definitely buy it I know loads of people who would want this book but I can't be the person to write it and I convinced myself that this book would only be successful if it were written by Michelle Obama or Jane Rivers. 
Right. And I told this friend of mine who's a writer about this. I said, I'm just burning to write this book, but I just don't think I'm the person to write it. And she said, look, Viv, Michelle Obama is very busy. Sure. And Joan Rivers is dead. Also true. (laughs) And were Joan Rivers not dead, she would not write this book. And I realised that I have the capacity to pass on this knowledge and I want to you know there are a lot of performers who have this knowledge but they don't necessarily want to make themselves vulnerable enough to share it or they feel uncomfortable being in that kind of teaching role whereas I think because I started out in journalism and I'm used to different kinds of ways of communicating with people and collecting information and passing it on I felt really comfortable with that and I've really enjoyed that side of it. And also I used to be an agony aunt. I had an agony aunt podcast for four years on the pool. So I'm used to people writing in about their work worries and about their confidence and Mm. and giving them advice. And so this was just a great outlet for it. And also the book, it takes, I think, some really inspirational speakers and people that everybody will have heard of. But at the end of every chapter, one of the bits I really liked about the book is it is very applicable. So whether it's Michelle Obama or Emma Watson, you might read those or you look at TED Talks and think, oh, that's not for me. But actually what the book does is, I think, do a really nice mix of inspiring. Like when I was reading the book, I was thinking, I'm going to go and watch that speech. I'd not seen that. I've watched five more speeches I'd never seen because I've read the book, all of which I found really interesting and fascinating. And I think you start to watch them differently because I got used to you analysing them. I was then looking for different things. But then the point of the book isn't, be more them. It's very much about being more yourself. And so the book is actually structured in that way around lots of kind of be mores. So I thought we would dive into three of them and talk a little bit about what it means to be more each of these people and some practical things that we can kind of all take from them. And I felt it was only right to start with Be More Michelle because you are clearly a massive Michelle Obama fan. I think you describe yourself as having an unofficial unpaid job as being her biggest fan. Um, <laughs> That's was, so tragic, isn't it? <laughs> have you always been a fan? Fan because you started to research the book? Oh, where, where I, did the you know, <laughs> I'm such a big fan that I recently unearthed an email exchange that I had with her personal assistant or something with Michelle Obama's assistant when she was still working at uh, Chicago hospitals and she was something like chair of the board or some kind of job before her husband got the candidacy for the presidency. So he was a senator, but she still had a a paid job. And because there was a lot of talk about how he was probably going to get the candidacy and I don't know how I'd seen an article or read something about her, or maybe I hadn't even actually seen a picture of her. But I thought, oh, his wife sounds really interesting. And if he does get in, she could be the first black first lady. Yeah. And so I put in for an interview and they granted it to me. Yeah. And in the meantime, the candidacy happened. Yeah. And the whole thing collapsed. Oh, no. Because obviously what had been one interview uh, six months, six months later, if only I'd pushed pushed them harder (laughs) and said, you know, great, thank you, I'm coming tomorrow. And I would have interviewed her before the candidacy. Anyway, so I still have that email exchange. I sent it to a friend recently. (laughs) So that was in 
2007, something like that, 2006. Anyway, I've admired her for a long time. And one of the things I really wanted to bring out in the chapter in the book, and that I talk about this a lot at events, is it's very interesting what you said about this idea of the gap between inspiring and practical. Yeah. Because you look at Michelle Obama and you think, oh, this is she's an incredible speaker. She's one of the best public speakers of the last 100 years. You know, she's an amazing speaker. And that's inspiring, but it's also paralyzing because you just think, I'm never going to be as good as her. What's the point? Yeah. And, you know, I'm very familiar with that feeling from stand-up comedy. Like you see some performers and you just think, well, I'm never going to get anywhere close to that level. So I should just give up now. And you have to be really careful when you think that way because mm. it's never true. And you have to think about the work that has gone into that performance. And you have to think about the fact that you could do that work too. And you never know what your result is going to be. And with Michelle Obama, what I wanted to bring out in her story is that she was not always Michelle Obama. And now she tells this story in Becoming. That's why she yeah. called it Becoming. becoming you yeah. know, she had to become Michelle Obama. And from those early days, just after I had my email chain with her assistant, <laughs> which she would have never have found out about. It's such a sad moment. Um, <laughs> from the early days, she would do interviews with the press, a little bit of public speaking, not very much. And she was quite prickly and quite guarded. She always had a bit of a wise crack. She often said something self-deprecating in reference to herself or in reference to her husband. She would make remarks along the lines of, yeah, yeah, he's going to be the candidate, but he's not all that. That was her sense of right, humour. Right, okay, yeah. And you can tell now that... Quite British, quite a British sense yeah, of humour. Yeah, you can yeah. tell now that that is her sense of humour and that she inhabits that in a very light-hearted, fun way. Yeah. But those things were read quite negatively early on. And she learnt from that. And she slowly started to develop this much more open, relaxed informal authority that she has and she realized that she can't get away with making those cracks because they don't quite suit the office that she's in I think now that she's left that office and she's her own person she can yeah. do it again um, I saw her recently as part of her book tour in Paris um, and there she was much more open and relaxed and informal than she ever was during those democratic convention speeches that are really famous, like when they go low, we go high and yeah. I raise my daughters in a house built by slaves. Obviously, those are really orchestrated super rehearsed moments where she can't afford to put a step wrong, but it has to look completely natural and effortless. And you talk about her having something called happy high status. Explain to us what that means. Happy high status is something I've been obsessed with for a long time. It isn't exactly originated by me. I kind of borrowed it from an improv teacher called Keith Johnston, who wrote the seminal book on improv, Impro it's called. And he talks a lot about status. In improv, the concept of status is really important because part of the play of it is that you're constantly moving up and down in status in relation to the other people. So say, for example, you do, an, I'm thinking of like, whose line is it anyway? Yeah. Party scene somebody comes in with a drink and immediately you need to know what their relationship is to the other person and not literally is it their brother is it their boyfriend but who's got the power in the relationship 
you know that and we're always looking out for these things on stage and in all interactions who's got the power who's up and who's down Mm -hmm. and happy high status is a way of behaving as a very useful way of behaving for politicians in particular where you are high status because you're the president or you're the first lady but you're also on a level with everyone else So you're not asserting your status. You're just occupying it and you're relaxed and you're happy. It's almost like a sort of Buddhist Zen idea of I'm okay, you're okay. Okay. I might be the king, I might be the queen, but you are equal. Everyone is equal in my eyes. It's that you can really sense it in Barack Obama and in Michelle Obama, this idea of I can take criticism from anybody and it's fine. Tell me more. You know, Barack Obama has loads of incidences of being in TV debates with people who are against him and listening, really listening with open body language and saying, yes, I understand. Tell me more about why you think that instead of like closed body language and dominating. If you think of the way so... The opposite of happy high status is just high status. And that would be the way that Donald Trump stood looming behind mm-hmm. Hillary. It's hard sometimes to say high status is bad because some people read it as, oh, that person has high status. Yeah. Oh, I, I admire them. Oh, yes, I must vote for that person. They seem very in control. <laughs> uh, whereas happy high status, I think, is a much more impressive way of occupying power and of saying, yeah, I'm in this position and I have these things to say but I'm not going to force them on you. Yeah. It's much more powerful. And for anybody listening, thinking, well, this isn't relevant to me because I'm not going to become the first lady or the president. That was going to be my next question. To which I say, (laughs) you never know. Um, Happy high status is not about your business card. It's not about your job title. It's about how you move through life. So it's about having a magnanimous attitude to everything and letting other people be in their space and have their opinion and... You don't let it in unless it's relevant. Yeah. I think you talked about three particular qualities that I found really interesting, which is often people who've got happy high stated are as interested in other people as they are themselves. So as you talked about Barack Obama, like genuinely listening. So you're not doing that thing of just like waiting to speak or it's just kind of all about you. They don't take things personally and they have a knack for making things seem easy and natural, which I always think of as like, you know, the swan analogy of like, they seem quite kind of swan-like. I was like, right, I'm going to pick the one that personally I need to work on, which is not taking things personally. How do you almost achieve that kind of happy high status? Because I hope that it's, and I feel like from reading the book, it's something that we can all like learn and practice. And probably for some of the, I always go, well, I'm really interested in other people. That's a really core part of my job. So I, I go, right, got that one. I don't know whether I always make things seem easy and natural, but I can stay quite calm. The personally thing I think I take, I was that where I was like, I think that's my barrier. So what would your advice be to people where they're going, oh, but if somebody criticises me, I do take it personally. For example, when our book comes out, I think I'm going to find it really hard if people don't like it. And obviously some people are not going to like it. There are going to be people who who I've never met who'll go on Amazon and go, one star, worst book I've ever read. And I think that's going to make me cry. Yeah, well, that is because you're a human being, Sarah. Okay, okay. You know, there's there are limits here to being superhuman and it would be wrong if you never took anything personally. We're always, no matter how much we do this work and we become more at ease with things and we become more like Michelle Obama or whoever else, 
no matter how much we channel that and improve it, we're always going to have a bad day, a vulnerable day. You're not feeling well or you've received a piece of criticism that you actually deserved. Those are often the ones that hurt the most. And you have to have practical measures for a start. So, for Mm. example, with your book reviews, either don't be checking them and have someone to check them for you. Yeah. Or if you find you can put up with it, only check them on a good day. Yeah. Good no, I don't know yeah. if people recently saw the documentary with Jesse from Little Mix. No, but I, I read about it yesterday because I think it's the most watched thing on BBC Three this year. Or yeah, I saw, yeah, she got absolutely caught in a spiral of binging on negative reviews. She would positively seek them out mm. to make herself feel worse, almost like a sort of a psychological self-harming. Yeah. So you have to be careful that you're not putting yourself in the way of criticism just for the sake of it. More generally, not taking things personally. The day-to-day practice of that is linked to a practice that we all need in speaking and performing as well, which is it's not about you. It's not about you. When you're doing speaking or anything public or even if you're just doing a job interview or even telephone call, don't make it about you. Listen to the other person. Listen to their response. What are you giving them? What are they giving you back? What is the quality of the interaction? Take as much of your focus out of yourself and onto other people as possible. And that is really important in speaking and performing. But it's also important in everyday life because you don't know what's going on with other people. I hope nobody does leave a one star. (laughs) I've had many, many one star reviews. (laughs) So I know what it's like. But that person may need to leave that review because Mm -hmm. it makes them feel better. That served a need. Okay, good. You know, let them get on with their life. All opinions, all reactions are valid and possible. And, you know, it's a free world. It's a free country. Thank goodness. Yeah. But you have (laughs) to have boundaries about what you let in and why. And I think that's really important when people are speaking because I think you, particularly for people who find speaking difficult, almost to that point around spiralling, I think people make it into such a big thing in their minds. Often when we talk to people about confidence gremlins, one of the top 10 confidence gremlins we always find with people is public speaking of some description. Something about either being put on the spot or having to kind of stand up or even just speak in a meeting. And I think the problem is then, I observe with people, these confidence gremlins grow and grow and grow in your own head. So you start to then think, am I not articulate? Am I doing too many ums and ahs? What do people think of what I'm wearing? And I think all these things are just self-perpetuate to the point where you go, wow, it's become so much about me, that's all you can think about. And I think just remembering things like, you know, often people are not even listening. (laughs) No, they've got other stuff going on. Any audience that you're in front of, even if it's one person... They may be recently bereaved. They may have had food poisoning last week and they haven't quite got over it. They're not going to tell you about that. (laughs) They might have a cold brewing. They might have a much more important meeting later on. They might have found out that actually they're not supposed to see you in this meeting, but it's been too late and it's too embarrassing to cancel it. You'll only find out about that later. There's a million things that might be going on that you can't control. So stop trying to control everybody else's response to you. You can't anyway. And give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that comes up a lot, um, and I want to just briefly explore, is the physical side of speaking. And particularly when you think about somebody like Michelle Obama, and you talk about it in some of the kind of tip sections in the book around 
how you sit, um, like physically sitting back, sitting up straight, breathing, those kind of things, how important they are. What are the things that you would say if people are starting to think about kind of how they physically show up? What's kind of a good place to start? I think a good place to start is to remember that there is no correct way of doing anything. And a lot of the myths around public speaking have grown up, I think, from the sort of private school debating (laughs) kind of stereotype of you must stand in a certain way and you must project from your diaphragm (laughs) and all of these ridiculous things that nobody cares about. So don't ever be thinking oh, I need to be a certain way or stand a certain way or breathe a certain way in order to do this right. And anytime you do find yourself doing that, just go on the TED website and you will see hundreds of speakers speaking in all completely different ways. Yeah. Completely different ways. It's so interesting to see if you watch Simon Sinek's TED Talk, it's pretty rubbish. I mean, that's one of the most watched TED Talks of all time. There you go. And his book is a massive bestseller. Most watched, not perfect. But it's very lo-fi. It's not like he's super slick, but he's compelling and he's very authentic. But if you think about, you know, that's somebody who's gone to be a massive bestseller, incredibly successful. His ideas are what's important. But I find often people talk about that TED Talk and I'm like, actually, go and watch it because it would just remind you that you don't need to be you know, standing at the centre of stage, remember everything, delivering everything perfectly. Some of the most compelling talks are actually people who maybe don't do that. Yeah, that's such a great example. The bar is much lower than you think. Yeah. And by trying to reach a higher bar and reach it artificially by pretending to be something you're not, you will fail. It's much better to do exactly what he's doing in that clip and be yourself with flaws. Yeah. Do it a bit amateur. Do it a bit rubbish. Be nervous. But show up how you are. You know, I notice increasingly now, and I think it's great, men and women, and I don't want people to fall into the trap of doing this all the time, but saying at the beginning, this is the first time I've yeah. talked about this topic, or I'm feeling a bit nervous today, so bear with me. I mean, that's not a tick that you want to get into too much, and you no. only want to say it when it's true. But I think it's fine to say that and people appreciate it. Yeah. And it's fine to talk with a catch in your voice or with a great big flush coming up your neck. It's fine as long as you keep going and you feel comfortable. So what you were saying about what should people do with their body, Mm. for me... It's more important how what you do with your body makes you feel inside. Because if the externals, I always say there's this conversation between your externals, which is how you hold your body. Mm -hmm. So you could have your shoulders back in this very relaxed, open posture where your breathing's nice and easy and free. Or you can have them hunched forward in a kind of anxious, stressed posture. It affects your internals how you're moving and how you're standing so the more open you are with your shoulders back uh, your feet hip width distance apart if you can I mean obviously you don't want to be standing like some kind of weird (laughs) statue so you have to practice this a little bit and be prepared to feel a bit awkward sometimes at first but the more you have that relaxed posture or take the time beforehand to stand maybe in the power poses that Amy Cuddy talks about Wonder Woman or arms above your head crossing the finishing line Usain Bolt opening up your body it speaks to your mind and says oh you're okay you can do this yeah rather than that 
hunched posture which says, oh, I just want to curl up into a ball and die. (laughs) So the reason for those postures and experimenting with different ways of standing, it's not to look good in front of other people. It's to make yourself feel more relaxed. You know, we all know people at work who are a bit awkward and a bit uncomfortable, but we're still interested in their ideas. Yeah. As long as they are not tortured while they're delivering the ideas. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I was watching J.K. Rowling's commencement speech, I think it was at Harvard, which I'd, I'd actually not seen before, before I read the book. And I think I'd made an assumption that she would be a really comfortable speaker because she's an incredible storyteller. I think she's brilliant on Twitter. She's very articulate. She's a brilliant writer. She clearly doesn't love public speaking. What I thought was really interesting about some of the things that she did at that Harvard speech was... She signalled that to everybody really early. So I think she makes a joke about saying uh, like how much weight she'd lost, being like quite anxious and nervous about doing it. And she very clearly like read her speech out. So it wasn't, you know, it definitely had warmth and she was making eye contact with the audience, but it was very clearly very well prepared with some jokes and anchor sentences, I think you kind of call them, which I thought was just really interesting. And this idea of making life easier for yourself... I felt like she had really thought about how do I make life easier for myself here? I'm going to write it. She clearly practised it a lot. I'm going to signal to the audience that this is not my favourite thing to do. And then she, I think she references a commencement speech she'd heard when she graduated and then the fact she couldn't remember anything from it. And so she was like, that's okay because you won't remember any of this either. So I just felt like it was a really authentic speech I really warmed to her, watching her. And at no point did she look super comfortable, actually. I didn't ever think, oh, she's getting into it. She looks really happy now. But I did feel like she tried to make her life easier. So is that something that you see with lots of the people who you do think are owning the room with all the people you've interviewed um, for the podcast? Have they worked out for themselves how to make their own life easier? Yeah, the really 
salient thing that has come across in the podcast most of all. And it's everybody from Nigella Lawson to Mary Portas, Mary Beard, Anne-Marie Imafidon, who's one of the best tech speakers in the world. She's this 27-year-old um, who runs a company called Stemets, who got a maths GCSE when she was nine right. and is an amazing speaker. And then we have people like Mira Sayal and Catherine Tate, Josie Rourke, who's a film director. And what they all have in common is having experimented with different ways of preparing for a speech, doing a pitch, like a lot of the time we talk about how to ask for money or how to pitch in a meeting. Um, Lots of the interviewees will have gone through that. How to give a good interview. And often what has worked best for them is feeling their way towards their own thing Mm -hmm. in exactly the way that you describe with J.K. Rowling. So that speech was probably the biggest speech that she'd given, biggest Mm -hmm. public speech. And it did go viral. It was turned into a book. You can buy the text. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And it's an amazing speech. And like you say, it's amazing because it's not perfect. It's very natural and it feels very real. Yeah. And that was a huge inspiration for me writing the book of trying to show people exactly what you just described, Sarah, of this doesn't have to be perfect it just has to be you yeah nobody is perfect we get married to people who we don't think are perfect (laughs) right no offense to my husband (laughs) we don't expect anyone to be perfect we like it when they're not Mm. no we don't want people to be fake imperfect you know to pretend to make mistakes or pretend to be nervous or pretend to be humbled when they're not but if they really are we love to see that so I really wanted to bring that out but for a lot of the speakers on the podcast I'm thinking of Mary Portas in particular here they have developed a way of preparing for events where it's got to match up with their own personality and it's got to match up with their schedule as well and their commitments. So for a lot of people, they might not have time. Some people might have to give 10 speeches in a week. Yeah. Or they might give 10 speeches in a week and then not do any speaking for a year because they're working on their company and then the other time they're promoting their book or whatever. And so the speeches will have to be off the cuff. And so then they will practice a technique like know the first three sentences that you're going to say and know the last three sentences but in the middle it's going to be improvised and for other people like J.K. Rowling in that particular example also for Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie who has done two viral TED talks it's got to be a piece of paper yeah and you're going to have to read every single word and semi-memorize it but have a text and there's no right way people often say to me um, in events you know somebody asked me last night at an event I have to give a 15 minute speech I've done it I have to do it every year at this event I've tried it all different ways and I can't work out which is the best way I've done it off the cuff I've done it all written down I've done it with note cards I was like this is brilliant you're doing the right thing keep going yeah. And one year you will hit on the one that's exactly right for you. I think for me, the anchor sentences really stuck out because that is something that I use. So I do quite a lot of public speaking and, and usually feel relatively comfortable doing it. But I don't like starting. I find the first bit really hard. So I get quite nervous meeting new people. I'm naturally introverted. Once I'm in my flow, I actually feel quite confident, comfortable, and I enjoy speaking to groups of people, small or, or large. I don't like starting and I don't like finishing. So the only bit I will practice, and actually I do practice it out loud, is the start and the finish. 
And then I'll know broadly what beats I need to hit or the things that I need to cover. The other thing that somebody once told me that I found really useful is from most of the time when you're talking to people, if you ask them in a week's time what they can remember, it's either nothing or one thing. So I always try to have in mind what's the one thing I want people to remember as a result of this 10-minute presentation or or 45-minute workshop or half-a-day workshop or this podcast or whatever it is that we're doing. I always think, right, well, if I can get one thing to stick, I'm probably not doing a bad job. And I'll make sure that I kind of hit that a few different times, maybe tell some stories around that. And then I don't worry too much about everything else being perfect. And I think that's really helped me. Well, that's a genius masterclass. (laughs) Lots of practice, though. Exactly what you've just said is perfect. And I find talking to people about this individually and sometimes coaching um, women in particular towards speeches, the tendency to over-deliver and think that more is required than is needed out of this feeling, I suppose, of insecurity and sometimes a bit of imposter syndrome of, I can't possibly be enough. It can't be that you just want me to tell you this one thing. I had better deliver and download my entire life experience in this 20-minute talk, which, as you say, then no one will (laughs) remember a word of anyway. It's insane how that has taken hold, um, especially amongst women who I think tend to go into this behaviour that this American coach who I love very much called Tara Moore, M-O-H-R, she wrote a book called Playing Big. It's what she would call good girl behaviour. So it's, you know, swatting really, really hard to make sure that you ace the test, learning extra things so that you get extra marks from the teacher. Well, we're (laughs) not at school anymore and it's okay to under-deliver and actually the audience will appreciate you under-delivering. The woman who asked me last night about, I've got this 15-minute speech and I don't know how to approach it and what's the right thing, la, la, la. And I said, you know, next time, why don't you do a really, really cracking 10-minute speech? Or if you're really brave, write and prepare five minutes and do it really slowly. Yeah. Because that's all you need. Like nobody ever, well, maybe they did say if something went wrong, that speech was too short. But <laughs> hardly anybody ever says that <laughs> no. speech was too short or I wish they had more slides. The other question I sometimes encourage people to think about for themselves is somehow people's expectations of themselves are so different to their expectations of other people. So if I say to somebody, well, what do you expect when you see somebody in this meeting, you know, somebody in your team, or what do you expect when you see this person presenting? And they'll say, oh, you know, I want to see their personality. I just want them to be themselves. I don't expect them to be word perfect. But for some reason, then when they think about themselves, they expect themselves to be word perfect and to remember everything. And so I think just that there's some sort of disconnect, I think, that seems to happen. I would observe particularly with women that we coach around expectations of others versus the expectations of yourself just being phenomenally high to the point of unreachable and realistic. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is to do with control. Mm. It's to do with controlling the outcome. So what people want in an ideal abstract world is in a speech, you, you write your speech, you turn up, you read it, and you think, well, all the things I wanted to say were in my speech, so I've done it. Well, that's not it. <laughs> that's not it. It's yeah. about connecting and it's about taking the risk. The risk of people might not get this bit or... This might not land with everybody, but I'm going to try it anyway. All of these techniques and ideas that people have for 
making it perfect, over-delivering, mm. being in control, they're all to do with the fear of the outcome. Well, you can't control the outcome. You could give an amazing speech and everyone just hates it. <laughs> but that's okay. It's still amazing. You know, it's you may be saying things that are uncomfortable and people don't like. Yeah. But yeah. you might need to say those things. So it's this desire to do a good job in inverted commas really gets in people's way, I think. And the other thing that um, when you talk about at the end, uh, there's lots of inspirational people in the book, but then you do talk about the important thing really is to be more you, not to try and be more anyone else. And one of the things I thought it was worth kind of dwelling on a little bit is this idea of not expecting your nerves to go away. I think sometimes people feel that, oh, the more I practice this, the better I get. I'll just stop getting nervous. That sense of maybe anxiety or, you know, physically how you kind of show up and get a bit nervous. Oh, at some point that will disappear. Certainly in, in my experience, and I've spoken more and more over the years, certainly for big events and things, I still get nervous just beforehand because you care and you want to do a good job. And often you're in not an everyday scenario. It's not like you're doing that every day. So I don't, I've now kind of got used to, oh, it's okay to feel nervous. Do you um, feel that when you've interviewed lots of people for the podcast, do they still get nervous? Is Nigella and Mary Portas, people like that, are they still getting nervous? Yes. And I always ask this question <laughs> to prove the point. Everybody yeah. is still nervous. I think the the quality of the nerves changes over time and they can lesson the more experienced you become because you know the first time you do live radio I mean I probably started doing things like woman's hour about 10-15 years ago and the first time I would have been absolutely terrified of being interviewed by Jenny Murray mm -hmm. whereas now I just feel completely relaxed and fine about it the quality of the nerves changes with your exposure to those opportunities but from all the people that I've interviewed no matter how experienced a performer they are there's still some adrenaline there that can feel like nerves. And people often say, if they're not there, then you just don't care enough anymore and there's no point in doing it anyway. And people need to know that it's a natural physiological reaction. It's not who you are or your personality or the fact that you shouldn't be doing this. It's just like... A natural. Yeah, you just like, you smell some coffee, you don't think oh my God, this is so weird. I can smell coffee. You can just smell coffee. Yeah. You know, when you get nerves before you're going on stage or going into an interview or doing something that matters, of course you're nervous. Yeah. That's normal. One of the things that I think I've had to really get used to is if I'm speaking, let's say I make a bit of a mistake or, or something goes a bit wrong, I blush. So I, I naturally like blush quite easily, go quite red and stuff. And also I've had feedback from people before, like in the past in some of the big companies I've worked in going, oh, you do know that sometimes you blush and you're like, yeah, sure. Like, I, I do know that that happens. Thank you, Sherlock. Yeah, and you're like... And so for a while, I thought, oh, that's something I've got to stop happening. Somehow, I've got to work out a way of foolproofing against blushing, against something that I can't control in the first place. Whereas now, what I've realised, a bit like with the nerves, is if something doesn't go to plan, I know I will blush, but all I now think of is, oh, that's a natural reaction to that thing people aren't going to be judging me for it. They'll probably just go, oh, she's clearly a bit embarrassed. I make a joke of it and then I just move on. I think for ages I felt like I had to fix it. Like genuinely, I was quite obsessed by how do I stop myself blushing 
but it is actually you are trying to do the impossible. Yeah, I'm so glad that you talked about that because so many people ask me about this. Oh, really? And men also ask about flushing because the flushing yeah. can come up in, like from chest their chest, and, yeah. right up the chin, sometimes people going onto the face. And I've seen it happening in people and I can understand why they find it so hard and it's physically uncomfortable as yeah. well. It can be like get really hot prickly and... heat. Mm. And I know men who will wear a... Yeah, you know, polar neck and women, you know. Oh, I wear, so... um, I used to wear green makeup. Right. So you can wear green makeup that is intended to, like, you know, help, I don't know, get your skin, yeah. like, to be... So I used to wear, for, like, really big meetings, loads and loads of that green makeup. Right. Thinking, oh, well, then if I blush, it won't be as obvious. The foolproof Kermit it's... method. Yeah, it's pretty... Wow. Now it's quite embarrassing. I'm actually quite embarrassed that I've admitted that. You but, shouldn't be embarrassed you know. <laughs> because it's normal to have a weakness. Yeah. And you've just found a different way of dealing with it, which is to face it and, and style it out. Yeah. And I think for people who are thinking, okay, how can I get to that place? You could... Just say to people, by the way, before this meeting, I just want to say I have a tendency to blush because I have a skin condition. I hope none of you will be weirded out by it. <laughs> you know, just if you're really that worried about it, take it out of the equation from the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Well, now if it happens to me, and I would say it's funny now that I've accepted it, it happens less. It's inevitable, isn't it? Now that you're more relaxed about it, it does happen less. And now when it does, I would just always just be like, oh, you made me blush. Now I'll just I'll yeah, just say something like that. That's so good. And then I just keep going. But it's amazing. To be clear to everybody listening, that took a good ten years of trying to hide it first and then before I realised that probably wasn't the thing to do. But it's a great thing to let yourself have those moments because then somebody else in that meeting will think, Oh, she's blushing and she's fine with it. I recently worked with somebody who had a really quite severe voice defect of mm. when she speaks she speaks almost like this all of the time okay. and that's just her natural speaking voice yeah and she suffered with it her whole life of people saying sorry I can't understand what you're saying <laughs> and it wasn't that she was difficult to understand it was just that she had got in her own way so often when she she'd be uh, uh, okay yeah she had started to clear her throat before speaking right. and to adopt all of these ums and errors and vocal tics because she felt so uncomfortable and as soon as those things were ironed out she had a really interesting beautiful voice to listen to that was yeah. completely unique yeah and you just thought oh yeah let's get her to record an audiobook you know yeah. I mean because everybody's voice is special and unique and we know this from our friends like even if our friends have Soft voice, loud voice, funny voice. You know, we love to listen to them. And it's true in, in work as well. And everybody's just always trying to sort of reach to this, like, mythical, weird standard. Yeah. I think once you can get over that, it's a big tipping point, I think. It, we, we know generally it's often quite unhelpful to compare yourself to others. But I think in this, almost with digital technology, and it's become so much easier to get access to lots of incredible speeches and people forget all of the work that's gone into those I think I can't remember what the average is but people who've done you know some of the very big TED talks now people have done like over 200 rehearsals I think like the average stat is and I think people forget that like oh well that's something that's been rehearsed 200 times or I love the fact that um from a physical perspective when you were talking to Nigella Lawson you know you said obviously she looks incredible and she actually was very honest and said oh yeah I always ask if there's um, a budget for hair and beauty but she was very much to your point that makes me feel better and more confident it wasn't about what other people thought it was just about how she felt I thought I want hair and beauty how do I get that my sister's a beautician so I thought maybe I could just get her 
to like come around with Definitely. me. <laughs> and also, yeah, people can get very uh, funny about that sort of thing because they think, oh no, they're going to think I'm really grand if I ask for that. They're going to think I'm trying to be like Nigella Lawson. <laughs> and the reality is you're actually creating work for somebody. Yeah, yeah. You're creating a work for somebody who wouldn't otherwise have worked that day, perhaps. Yeah. And you're creating a sense of theatre and a sense that this is going to be a performance. It's going to be great to look at. Yeah. It's going to be an occasion. So let's invest in it. Somebody I work with who's recently been promoted, I was having my photograph taken with her for a work thing, and she doesn't like having a photograph taken. She's obviously a bit nervous about it. And I love the fact that she was like, no, beforehand, I'm going to invest in myself. I'm going to get my hair sorted. Something she didn't want to do. It just gave her that confidence of just being like, no, I can do this. It seemed to me to be as much about being confident in that job as it was, you know, anything else. It was just that moment of going, I know what I need to feel confident in this moment. Something I'm going to, I don't naturally feel comfortable in. Accepting that you can do something is really important. I think a lot of us think, oh, I need to be confident, but I'm not confident and therefore I shouldn't do it. Instead of thinking, what can I do in order to be confident? Mm. And it might be something like, have my colleague who I really trust come and sit in the front row yes and look look at at me me, like really encouragingly (laughs) or you know have my colleague who I can't stand go and be sent to another meeting make that happen or make them don't let them know that you're doing this but find a way to make them sit at the back you know what do you need to feel confident do you need to go and get your hair done yeah do you need to go and sit in a room on your own for half an hour do you need to go and listen to eye of the tiger you know before you <laughs> do go some on amy teddy poses in yeah, the bathroom think about what you need that's going to make you confident rather than just getting paralyzed by that idea of oh, I'm not confident and so it's all over. This is just going to be awful or I'm just going to find a way of getting out of it. And so with all of the different people that you've met and all the research you've done, do you have a favourite speech? Or is that too hard a question? Well, my favourite speech changes all of the time. What what is it at the moment? At the moment, um, it's one of the speeches from the Emmys, which Mm. was, um, I'm going to forget the actress's name, but she plays the agent in Mrs. Maisel. And she just won for Best Supporting Actress. It's her second Emmy. And uh, she gave a speech about her grandparents being Holocaust survivors and said that when her grandmother was in line to be shot, she turned around to the soldier and said, what happens if I step out of line? And he said well, I won't have the heart to shoot you, but someone else will. So she stepped out of line. And in the speech, uh, the actress says, so that's my message to everyone, step out of line. That's good. Isn't that great? Really great. But my all-time favourite is Oprah Time's Up. So that's her um, Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, It's from 2018, if people want to look it up on YouTube. It's a 10-minute speech, and it's where it has this brilliant example of using tone in the voice and pushing things up to capture sort of ebb and flow of the argument that you're making almost it's almost like a river the way that she Mm. she talks and there's this moment where she says and their time is up and it makes everybody rise to their feet and it's just so clever and brilliant and it just feels so natural but the brilliant thing for me about that speech is that afterwards, Oprah said, in the rehearsal, they told her, you're running over. Yeah. And she said, this is my lifetime acceptance speech. This is the speech. There is no running over. I am Oprah. 
And they said, we don't care. You're running over and we're going to play the orchestra music over you. Okay. So she was thinking about that all of the time and it was giving her dry mouth. And dry mouth was making her lips get stuck on her teeth. So she was really enunciating and getting out every word. And it's from that that the performance got its strength and its power from something having gone wrong. And then because it had gone wrong and she was having to enunciate and really push it and really bring everyone with her, it was so good and the audience was so with her that they couldn't possibly play the music over it. So it's just a sort of genius example of something kind of going wrong and the person being secretly nervous but that actually enhancing the performance I do think with so many of things that you think are brilliant there's sort of the what you see and then there's like the hidden reality and even with those people who you think are the most confident someone like Oprah who's got the most experience she's still nervous everyone's nervous things go wrong all the time for everybody actually it's how you cope with those how you deliver in that moment stay focused stay present that's all that that matters and I think if you can get out of this idea or this hope of I'm going to get to a point of perfection that there is a destination of I'm suddenly going to just all be confident it'll all be brilliant I'll never get nervous I think as soon as you accept that that isn't a destination you can feel more confident in thinking yourself and so the book is full of ideas, actions, hints and tips. Is there one that has really stuck with you from all the research that you've done? The tip that resonates the most with people is the one I feared would not translate onto the written page. (laughs) And it's a tip that I have used countless times in performance and that I teach face to face. So if I'm doing workshop group or if I'm doing, I've got a big event coming up with 400 people at um, Conway Hall in London, um, a How to Own the Room event, I will normally get everybody to stand up and do this so they can feel it. So it's standing with your legs. You can do this sitting down as well, actually. Hit okay, with ready. distance apart, shoulders back. Yeah. And you just close your eyes and you imagine your brain dropping like a stone into your stomach. So you have to really imagine your mind crashing down into the pit of your stomach and nestling there. So brain and stomach. Okay. And then imagine that the soles of your feet have grown nostrils and you are breathing through your feet. Breathing through the soles of your feet with your brain in your stomach. (laughs) So relaxing. It's relaxing. It's really, really good for insomnia as well. (laughs) So that is the one tip that is great for nerves, focus, confidence, centering yourself at any moment, brain and stomach, breathe through feet. And I think that's a really good practical way really to try hippie, to do that. Yeah. It is. I, I quite yeah, it's really that, hippie, <laughs> but it works. <laughs> so if you are interested to find out more, we've obviously talked about the book and the podcast. I'd also really recommend following Viv on Instagram. She's at Viv. Groskop. Every day she does a room owning woman and she picks somebody usually in the media, though I really enjoyed the one this week, which was your sister. And you will a celebrate them owning the room. I always feel like they're very celebratory and very positive, but also just talk about why. Why have they done it? What was it that they did? I'm now looking forward to it as my daily inspiration to see 
who you pick, where you pick it. You're making me watch a lot more videos than I used to. Oh, yeah. Well, this is the problem. When you start getting obsessed with this stuff, there's so much, especially on YouTube and TED, that you can just go down a rabbit hole of hours and hours and hours. It's incredibly inspiring. And if people wanted to come along to any of your live events, are they all on your website? Yes, yes. I tend to put everything on Twitter or Instagram, yeah. Brilliant. And as always, we will put all of the resources in terms of links to Viv's book and her podcast, any events that we know that she's got coming up. So you'll be able to access all those. You just go to amazingif.com and we'll, as always, Instagram tweet everything with all links to Viv's stuff. So you'll be able to find out more if you'd like to. But thank you so much for joining us, Viv. It's been fascinating. I'm going to do the brain in stomach, breathe through your feet thing. That's going to be my new, my new thing before well, I do any big. Thank you, Sarah. Tweet. And I think this your interviewing has been a great example of owning the room. Ah, oh, thank you. What a compliment to end on. Happy high status all the way. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 